Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in today for Jerome McDonald. In just a decade, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren went from obscure Harvard professor to progressive favorite and presumed 2020 presidential candidate. But as her political career took off, many noticed the Caucasian-looking Warren self-identify as Native American. During the 2016 campaign, then-candidate Donald Trump coined a nickname for Warren. Pocahontas? Trump dared Warren to prove her ancestry. And to up the ante, President Trump promised a $1 million donation to an indigenous cause if Warren's Native ancestry checked out. So in response, this week, Senator Warren released DNA results that supposedly found she has an indigenous ancestor between six to ten generations back. That means that one in up to 1,024 of Warren's ancestors could have been Native American. President Trump rebuked Warren's claim. What about the money that you told her you would... uh, You mean if she gets the nomination in a debate where I was going to have her tested? I'll only do it if I can test her personally. Okay, that will not be something I enjoy doing either. On Tuesday, Trump tweeted, Elizabeth Warren should apologize for perpetrating this fraud against the American public. Harvard called her a person of color, amazing con, and would not have taken her otherwise. Likewise, the Cherokee Nation rebuked Warren's claim on the basis that she doesn't understand how tribal affiliation works in America, saying to be Native American, many have to maintain citizenship within the nation. Here's Republican Oklahoma Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen, a registered member of the Cherokee Nation. You know, we're not trying to play politics here either. The facts are what they are. My family literally still live. I drove in this morning an hour and a half to get to the studio where my family literally stopped walking on the volunteer walk. And I use that as a loosely term. I still live on the Indian allotment land that my family has. And so the heritage runs deep in my family. For her, they're just stories. They're just stories that she's trying to get publicity off of or she was trying to get sympathy off of or maybe it's when she was trying to get a job at Harvard. I don't know, but the lies went far enough and it's time for her to apologize to the American people and all Native Americans. Meanwhile, North Dakota Supreme Court recently upheld measures that deny the right to vote to thousands of registered indigenous people in that state. So for that reason, I think it's timely to discuss the intricacies of genetics, belonging, and how consumerism compromises our desire to know who we are. And we'll do that as we revisit a conversation we had with two experts. Eviatar Zurabavel is professor of sociology at Rutgers University and author of Ancestors and Relatives, Genealogy, Identity, and Community. And Joseph Graves, associate dean for research and professor of biological sciences at the Joint School of Nanosciences and Nanoengineering at North Carolina A&T and UNC Greensburg. And Jerome McDonald first asked Joseph Graves how reliable DNA tests can be in examining ancestry. Okay, so it's important for listeners to understand how this methodology can be used, but more importantly, to understand its limitations in terms of the way it's used. So when we look at the human genome, 99.7% of that genome is identical in all people who are alive today. So that leaves about 0.3% of the genome that can be different. But what's important to recognize is that out of that 0.3% that's different, only about 5% of that would be useful for DNA ancestry markers 
to identify the ancestry of individuals. And so when you look at a genome of 3.3 billion base pairs, it's actually not a small number of bases that can be used. But there are all sorts of assumptions that go into the analysis of what is a suitable marker and what it actually tells us. And so in the early stages of that discussion, the, the population geneticists there were very careful to make clear to the folks that were going to put on the show what those limitations were in terms of trying to make claims about ancestry and recognizing that, that it's really a very non-exact process. You know, it seems pretty exact, though, when people get results from a place and it says, well, you're 28.9 percent Southern European and 31 uh, percent South Asian or something. What are we seeing there when we see those kind of things? Well, what you're seeing are the claims of a, DNA, a commercial DNA ancestry company. And there's really no reason to believe those claims. And unfortunately, a whole lot of people have been hoodwinked into thinking that these ancestry tests are are accurate. So one of the problems we have with commercial DNA testing is that, number one, the methodologies that they use are not peer-reviewed by research scientists who study human genetics and human evolution because these things are proprietary. So they're kept secret. So we don't know which specific markers are being used by which company and what their methods of analysis of the results are. And so you can take the same individual and you can get different answers depending upon the DNA ancestry company you use. So what one has to do when you see those results is you you really have to take them with a a lot of grains of salt in terms of whether you're really looking at something that says you're 28.9 or 28.9% Scottish or 28.9% German. And those are sort of in the best circumstances where you have a population that you could reasonably believe has been relatively stable over many hundreds of years. But there are places in the world, in particular places like Western Africa and Central Africa, that went through great amounts of population carnage as a result of the transatlantic slave trade and the wars associated with it in that region. So we have no way of knowing what the populations were like there genetically 300, 400 years ago. And so what they're doing is they're testing individuals who live there now as if they accurately represent the ancestors of the people that are being tested from 300, 400 years ago. And that's, that's an assumption that can't be supported. Ah, that's an interesting point. So you can't say that necessarily these people who they're getting their markers from today are the same people who were there 300, 500 years ago. In in some areas of the world, you can definitely say that's not true. In others of the areas of the world, you're you're making the assumption that that's true, and, and it's a little bit more reasonable. So I would say places like Northern Europe and Western Europe, that might be true. But in other areas of the world, it just—it's definitely not true. So I'm taking that you've never done your own DNA testing analysis. Uh, absolutely not. And, and the reason I haven't done it is because it wouldn't tell me anything more than I already know. Historically, I, I just so your viewers know that I'm I'm African American. Historically, we know that African Americans are descended from people who were taken from either Western or Central Africa. That they were admixed through chattel slavery with people of Western European descent for the most part. And so on the average, an African-American has about 16% of their genetic ancestry coming from people that used to live in Europe. And so I already know that. So by knowing which specific area of Western Africa or which specific portion of Western Europe doesn't inform me in any way in terms of the person I am. 
it might tell me something about some people who lived three, four hundred years ago, but that's not something I need to know. I'm talking with Joseph Graves. He's a geneticist and evolutionary biologist, and we're talking about DNA testing. And I want to work in Eviatar Zerubavel, who's with us. He's a sociologist. What do you make of what this says for people? I mean, Joseph doesn't think that DNA testing really fills in any blanks for him that aren't already known. What is the value to this thing, Eviatar? There is an assumption underlying all these uh, companies, Bruhaha, that there are ethno-racial entities that are discrete, and that's not the case. There's always been cross-fertilization. There's never been a group that was entirely German, entirely uh, Igbo, and so on. So what it tells me is not so much about the genetic reality as much as about people's fantasies. You know, we are born uh, separated from another body, all of us, when we are pulled out at birth. And we always have this fantasy of being reconnected to someone, something. So first it's at the level of individuals, and then it's at the level of groups. Again, I would emphasize that the boundedness of these groups is very big suspect for me. And just because we have a fantasy of the need to belonging doesn't make the genetic reality as factual as those companies pretend it is. You know, I want to ask a question about what we bring to it, you know, as a culture here in the United States or a culture in the United Kingdom. In the United States, we all talk about ourselves, or at least white people do, like we came from somewhere else. I am Irish or Italian or Polish. And the African-Americans haven't had that experience and really want to say, well, I'm from maybe West Africa or Angola or somewhere else. And this gives them that. But on the other hand, you know, you you hear funny stories about people in England who think they are 100 percent English and they have a big heredity thing linked to the monarchy and royalty. And they all want to be 100 percent English and believe themselves to be 100 percent English. And then, you know, maybe do a DNA test and it disproves that. And that seems like a good thing. Are there kind of nice elements of this that appear when you end up dealing with it? Well, again, what does it mean to be 100% English? As if Englishness is a bounded quality. It's not. England used to be invaded by Saxons and Normans and others and others. And being 100% English doesn't mean anything to me. The concept of African-American... It's a misnomer. Everyone who is living in America today is an African-American because all human beings started, evolved in Africa. The question is, you know, it should be said African-Americans whose ancestors came from Africa in the last uh, three or four centuries. But there are also traditions of remembering. The whole theme of belonging to some groups implies a certain certain idea of memory and a certain idea of classification. For example, and what I mean by classification is that we stop at ethno-racial entities, but we could go to, an, to the level of species or genus. Every uh, gorilla on this planet today is my relative, and I don't think of it as a relative. We are all cousins to different degrees, and at a certain point we stop talking about cousinhood and we talk about identity at the level of a nation or so on. 
There are also cultural traditions of tracing, reckoning, descent that sometimes override the biological reality. For example, in America, the one-drop rule. The one-drop rule, to me, explains not only technically, legally, but also culturally, informally, why Americans consider Barack Obama a black man whose mother was white rather than a white man whose father was black. These are cultural conventions, cultural traditions. Now, Joseph, um, do you have any thoughts about what that kind of thinking, you know, we're, we're kind of sociologically constructing our thing, not, not with DNA? Yeah, well, I have a lot of thoughts about those issues. I wrote two books about them. So, yeah, I mean, I completely agree. All anatomically modern humans, everyone alive today, is descended from someone who lived in Africa on the order of 150,000 to 70,000 years ago. And what most people don't realize is that the evolutionary events that made us anatomically modern humans had already occurred before anyone left Africa. And so the changes that occurred as populations migrated around the world, for the most part, were cosmetic. Now, there are some examples, well-studied examples of adaptation to specific conditions around the world as we migrated. Um, But these things um, don't really fall into categories that classical naturalists would describe as biological races. And in fact, we don't have biological races in our species. And so even some of the traits which have been used to separate people into traits like what the average person looks at on the street, skin color, are things that are actually rather modern adaptations that occurred a very short period of time ago. And these, again, don't uh, allow you to classify people into racial groups either. And so knowing something about ancestry is interesting. And in some cases, it does help people fulfill a longing for knowing, you know, the, the past of their ancestors. But it doesn't really tell us anything about what it really means to be human. And, and in specifically, I want to point out that most of the genetic markers that are used in ancestry analysis are actually non-coding markers, meaning they don't make anything. And so the fact that people differ in these markers doesn't make them different. And it doesn't account for the way they behave. It doesn't account for their culture. And so we really need to be careful about people finding out that, quote, their German ancestry is really Scottish and then deciding to have to wear kilts. It just doesn't follow from understanding how genes actually impact human behavior. You know, I think there's a, a certain sense of belonging that all people want to have to something or some group. And well, how about belonging to the human species? That would be nice. <laughs> that would be everybody. That would be super nice. <laughs> but uh, uh, in reality, again, the, the cultural differences we have are actually rather small. I mean, when you, when you actually look at the things that people differ on culturally, again, they're cosmetic. The fundamental things of human culture really have been preserved since we became a modern thinking species. So I think we spend too much time focusing on what we consider to be our cultural differences instead of focusing on what makes us all human. And if we did more of that, I think we would have less conflict. Aviatar, what do you have to say about some of the cultural aspects here? And I mean, we seem to be looking for culture in our DNA. I agree with everything that Professor Graves just said. I think that, and I've been interested for several decades in, and written a lot about the process of classification. And the process of classification underlies the way that we establish in our minds groups 
whether the groups are called uh, nations or races or ethnic groups or families, it's just different levels of grouping people on the basis of some genealogical similarity. Now, the point that I would emphasize is that similarity and difference are both a matter of definition. I'm similar to a lot of other people in a lot of other things, and I'm different from a lot of other people in a lot of other things. The question is, do I emphasize the similarity or the difference? You know, I, would, I wanted to ask a question about what it has to do with citizenship. I mean, every time we're, when we're a citizen, we check a box on our census form, and it, and it says, well, you're you're white, you're African-American, you're Hispanic, you're, and now there's like 18 boxes, and, you know, Brazil just went through this. Joseph, you wished there were one box, or are we constructing our identities right there when we start doing this? Well, when we talk about identity in its socio-political context, it's a little bit more complicated than I let on in my first response. And the reason for that is because we do have a history that was responsible for bringing about our modern country and our modern society. And that history was not one where people who fell into the different socially defined groups were treated in the same way. And so I was actually asked to be a consultant on these new categories of the census a few years back. And there were a lot of people arguing, well, we need to get rid of these categories altogether and and just be Americans. And my my argument to that is that's just simply not true because historically we haven't been treated as if we were all equivalent Americans. And so it's important to be able to gather sociological data and economic data that falls into these socially defined categories, which still have relevance with regard to an individual's well-being in our society, even to the point of how long you live and whether you'll be alive after a police intervention, for example. Aviatar, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I want to add that when you say citizenship, There are different forms of citizenship. I mean, around the world, there's a division between two main forms of citizenship, one called Jus Solis and one called Jus Sanguinis. Jus Solis depends entirely on where you are born, whereas Jus Sanguinis depends on the quote-unquote blood that you carry with you. I'm very interested, for example, in the whole debate around immigration here in the United States that foregrounds the idea of children of immigrants who were born here. And there's this derogatory term, anchor babies, that suggests that you come from, let's say, Guatemala here, you're pregnant or you become pregnant, you have your baby here, and the baby becomes American. Well, there are nations which go entirely by so-called blood, and others that don't. And the distinction is a cultural distinction. Eviatar Zorobavel is professor of sociology at Rutgers University and author of Ancestors and Relatives, Genealogy, Identity, and Community. Joseph Graves is associate dean for research and professor of biological sciences at the Joint School of Nanosciences and Nanoengineering at North Carolina A&T. When we come back, film contributor Milo Stalik talks with film star Rupert Everett about his latest role as Oscar Wilde. I'm Steve Bynum, and you're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum, in today for Jerome McDonald. 
Worldview film critic Milos Stedelijk interviews for you the world's great filmmakers and actors. And today he chats with British film star Rupert Everett, well known for his roles in My Best Friend's Wedding, Shakespeare in Love, and The Madness of King George. In his new film, The Happy Prince, Everett is director and the main star, playing Oscar Wilde in his last days. Everett struggled for a decade to get The Happy Prince made. The film opens today in theaters. So, Rupert, your new film about Oscar Wilde begs one question. Why Oscar Wilde? There have been films, books about Oscar Wilde, other films. How did you come to this? Three films about Oscar Wilde, as a matter of fact. Uh, Robert Morley in 1961, Peter Finch in 1963, and Stephen Fry in uh, 1990, I think. Um, for me, Wilde is, um, I suppose, a kind of patron saint or a Christ figure almost. And uh, when I was thinking of trying to write something uh, or write a role for myself, uh, I thought, well, what would be the thing that really was most applicable to me? And um, it felt like Oscar Wilde. I didn't really care about how many other books or films had been made. And Christ figure, you say, why? Because before your film starts, he's in prison. And that seems to be the moment or the years of his life that really change it. For me, he's like a Christ because the notion of Christ, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, half God, half man, which is such a wonderful and fascinating idea, ruined, of course, by the Catholic Church. But uh, the notion of it is great. And he really is a Christ figure because he's got a, an incredible genius, uh, an imaginative empathy for people, uh, which makes him into a great artist, I think. And then on the other side, he's man. Uh, with all the qualities that we all have, greed, envy, pride, uh, ego, laziness, and all these somehow play out in very strongly in his life. And so for me, he is very much like a Christ figure. Also, because he's such a big star, uh, that also is fascinating to me. Star being meaning that he was... In celebrity. In celebrity, incredibly Famous popular. and blinded by celebrity. So that when uh, he got to the point where the father of his boyfriend writes him a card addressed to Oscar Wilde posing as a sodomite, he doesn't see what's there to see. He's so wrapped up in himself and wrapped up in his own snobbery and his snobbish love affair uh, that he thinks he has to protect his boyfriend against his father and he gets into a thing that he's too blind to know how deep it is. Because he was the reason for why he ended up in jail, because he sued he the He made it happen himself. Well, right. He brought the whole thing down on himself, rather like the Democrats brought on Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> and so when your film begins, and question of why you chose that period, is when he gets out of jail, finally, after two years, very difficult years. Two difficult years, he has this kind of freedom, which isn't freedom, actually. It's just another type of prison. I think the whole story of Wilde's punishment at the hands of society, is very much a passion. The way he attacks his exile is uh, incredibly inspiring. He goes to France. He goes to France, and then he goes to Italy, and then he comes back to France. And he ends up being the last great vagabond, really, of the 19th century, along with Verlaine, uh, these two jailbirds uh, sitting on a boulevard, looking around for rich people who they could fleece for a few drinks. Um, and I think it's a wonderful uh, end, a very rock and roll almost ending to this kind of celebrity on the skids. So you don't look at all like Oscar Wilde, and of course you play him in this life, and you're in every single scene. So how did you, because it's essentially a film about one man, one right. character, right? So how did you direct this film and act in it at the same time? 
Well, um, I suppose I was lucky in the sense that I'd had such a long time to prepare. And also I was lucky... Because it was difficult to fund. Because of the funding. So that really made me over the years of getting it ready kind of question everything about it. Uh, Also the fact that I'd played so much wild in the theatre. So I understood the notion of the phrasing, the rhythms, the humour, the type of words. So when I was writing, I think that was a great help to me as well. Um, And then... I feel the director's job really, the biggest part of it is done before a film starts, actually. It's the choosing of the other people. If you've chosen the wrong people, uh, everything will go wrong as a result. And I was very lucky, or I chose well, and I got a group of people around me uh, in the technicians and among the actors who uh, managed to realize what I wanted without any conflict. One of the things that I like about your film is how you use... Wilde's work in a very creative way to really give us a sense of his breath because there are the plays which are so funny, socially critical. There is the poetry and then there is this kind of arc which we use very beautifully of the fairy tales. Mm. Well, when I started off, I've, I've always thought, God, it would be amazing to be able to make a kind of the Amadeus of poetry somehow, to have words with some visual um, imagery. It seems to make uh, sense. That was always part of my, my dream. And The Happy Prince, the story, I found is really kind of a, so essentially wild. And also the end of the prince's life on the statue, you know, being stripped of all his gold and all his jewels is so clearly like wild uh, before he knew it was going to happen. And uh, I thought it was a great title as well because obviously, apart from being not the opposite uh, because he wasn't happy, but at the same time there is something clownish and Charlie Chaplinish almost about Wilde in the last two years at the end of the 19th century in Paris. But he also suffered a great deal because there was the whole quest for love, which kind of ties to the happy prince, the fairy tale. So that's kind of a beautiful parallel to it. But it's also about his suffering because it seems to me like the jail really created kind of PTSD for him or he was really broken by it. I don't know whether he was broken by jail. I think he was broken by after jail. I think everything that happened afterwards was so complicated for him. You know, he arrived in uh, Dieppe uh, thinking he would uh, live peacefully and he found immediately that uh, the English were kind of on his tail almost. And so he couldn't go into a restaurant without uh, someone saying, get rid of that man. Uh, He couldn't have a party without the mayor of the town uh, writing him a letter warning him that he'd be chucked out. He realized very quickly that freedom was a kind of brick wall. Uh, So then he, on one afternoon, he drove in a horse and cart. The horse came from Berneval, as it happened, and they couldn't control it. So uh, they thought they were just going for a little drive in the country. But the horse bolted and went all the way to this other hotel, 10 miles down the beach. And because they'd been having such a problem in Dieppe, they decided to move to this village. And then at that point, Wilde was left alone. And when you go to this village, as I did, it's quite an extraordinary feeling because it's beautiful, but it's so lonely. And it's a kind of gully in the plain uh, going down towards the sea. And the sea is on these pebble beaches with these really majestic cliffs. But it's incredibly lonely. And one of the first insights I really had into him was walking from the village down to the beach, which he must have done every day that he was there. And 
imagining this person who was the life and soul of the Café Royal, friends with the royal family, three consecutive hits in the West End, reduced to a bedsit in, uh, you know, a faraway village on the north coast of France. I could feel his depression, uh, kind of like a thick quilt coming down. And so I think for him, I don't know whether prison broke him. I think prison potentially... Uh, could have made him. His last year in prison, uh, there was a new governor and the new governor uh, was much more sympathetic to him. And as he was, he had a, this amazing quality for empathy and uh, compassion. He really, uh, I think, took very seriously the other prisoners and the ones he, he met and talked to and the children who came into the prison. And I think he could have been relit if he'd had some kind of mentor. It's rather like being, uh, I feel, being a director now. If someone can mentor you and pull you through, you can achieve tons of things. No one had the time to pull Oscar through and onto the next step. So once he'd been left in Berneval, he was victim, really, to the onslaught of Lord Alfred Douglas, who was also bored in another town. And the two of them really had one thing in common. They, they got bored terribly easily. And so Wilde, having had all these lofty ideas, born-again Christian, starting his life again, suddenly the depression of you know, reality, you know, and a whole lifetime spent in Berneval, and then Bosey writing him these letters, uh, you know. But he was bored out of his brain, so they met, and once they met, it was as final as Adam and Eve eating the apple almost. <laughs> I mean, it was it, as soon as that happened, it was over. And it makes one think that he really did have this desire to end up in the gutter, uh, this absolute fixation on self-destruction somehow. I mean, it's all very easy to say those kind of things in the pre-post-Freudian world. And I don't even know if it can be true. You know, when people say about you, ooh, you have such a self-destructive quality, what does it mean? But with him, you really do get the feeling that there was something he was almost magnetically drawn to pulling himself down. And, of course, once he'd left with Bosey, it was like the whole world mm -hmm. zipped up mm -hmm. behind him and there was never, ever going to be any way back in. You're listening to World Beyond. Milo Stelic speaking with actor and director Rupert Everett, whose new film is called The Happy Prince about Oscar Wilde. There's one scene in this village where he goes, Oscar Wilde goes to the beach, which you use the scene. It really, very much reminded me of Visconti and that beautiful scene in Death in Venice. Oh, well... <laughs> Uh, that's an amazing compliment. Um, I, I adore Death in Venice and Visconti. So speaking now about playing Oscar Wilde, complex figures, you just talked about a lot of different elements of his personality. How did you channel this? Well, it was, um, I think my whole life in one sense, just in terms of what I'd done in the plays, I'd been in the picture of Dorian Gray, I'd been in the importance of being earnest, uh, I'd been in these two films, so I'd learned how to adapt uh, that dialogue to kind of cinematic uh, technique uh, quite successfully, I think. So in one sense, my career had prepared me to do it. Once I discarded the notion that the other three films really put across of him, and it's very much in terms of they're careful films to do with the image of Oscar Wilde, and probably quite rightly. Uh, but I didn't feel ever that he was quite so grave and thoughtful as Peter Finch, untroubled uh, um, uh, as his performance was. I feel that he's much more of a monster in one sense. But I love that about him, and I'm, I'm very keen in cinema to be able to 
portray a monster as also a hero. Uh, I think that's the thing we've lost slightly in the last 30 years of political correctness. You're either one thing or the other. And I think you can be both. And so that was really my mindset was in, into trying to incorporate all those sides of him, his selfishness and his uh, wallowing side, as well as his um, wonderfully empathetic side. Well, it gets away from that whole stereotype of the torture genius. Right. So in terms of Oscar Wilde, how transgressive in sense of his actions and what he did and ended up in jail, was this a reflection of the class structure in Britain? That he crossed class lines. I think also um, nations too. You know nations. what you have to, you can't forget with Wilde is he, that he was Irish right. and that the English had a very low opinion of the Irish. And uh, I think the further up the ladder he got, there must always have been a kind of building up of tension of resentment for his outlandishness. What was brilliant about him as a young man is when he was um, lampooned uh, in the Gilbert and Sullivan opera. He made the most of it, and he asked them if they wanted to take him with them to America uh, to show what the real character was like. I mean, this is just genius of self-promotion. And really, he was as like J-Lo as anyone else in his private train, trundling up and down America and being wined and dined by miners at the bottom of a mine. Uh, he was a very inventive character, but I think the English resentment towards him uh, must have hit a fever pitch because once he'd met Lord Alfred Douglas and it looked to him as if his journey to the high peaks of uh, society had finished uh, because he was going out with a young aristocrat. He was friends with that man's mother mm -hmm. uh, writing letters and he was friends with the brothers, Drum Lanrig and all this. I think he felt he'd completely arrived. So he had no compunction in swanning into the Savoy Hotel arm in arm and giggling with a high-pitched giggle uh, with Bosey. You know, it was only going to be a matter of time uh, when things turned against him, I think. So how contemporary do you think he is? What relevance does he have for today? I think the relevance today in broad terms is the Oscar Wilde story is strangely only about halfway across the spectrum of our global gay experience. Because yes, uh, in the first world in America and in the UK and in Europe, uh, one can say, uh, and with pride, I think, that the journey in the last 117 years has been extraordinary. And we can be very excited mm -hmm. here that we've got transgender senator maybe soon. We've got uh, RuPaul's Drag Race, whether you like it or not, uh, up there in the, on the charts. We've got uh, actors. We've got uh, models. Uh, we're moving uh, on the move. Of course, we're a minority and life is always dangerous, particularly now in both our countries, in Italy and Europe. These waves of populism are making the majority look at the minority as usual uh, with a kind of bullying eye. But I think we can deal with that. I think we have history and the movement of history on our side. In other parts of the world, that's not happening. In Russia, in Jamaica, in Uganda, uh, vast sways, three quarters of the world, it's still a life and death challenge daily to be a gay or a lesbian or a transgender person. So in that sense, I feel the story is very prescient. The wonderful thing about your film is it also brings you back to Oscar Wilde because it's not like he's a writer who is on our minds every single day. But to have the chance to really rediscover him or come back to him and the enormous range of what he wrote is really an incredible send-off. I think it's amazing. And I think he's, what's extraordinary about him is that there's so many things that do correspond with today. For example, 
You know, he really was the second celebrity for being famous. And that kind of prototype is very much what we're living uh, today. You know, you can become famous for being famous and just being yourself. And uh, that was really him as well. I think he was very much around for me uh, during the early days of AIDS, uh, you know, when lots of us found ourselves terrified and in groups sitting around the deathbed of a friend and uh, Oscar Wilde's deathbed is uncannily like uh, an AIDS deathbed and uh, that was one of the other things that inspired me about trying to make this deathbed story because I'd sat around a few deathbeds and they're long and drawn out and extraordinary things happen in them actually life goes on on a deathbed uh, strangely and his deathbed was very much about all that too. The film is called The Happy Prince, directed by filmmaker Rupert Everett, who is also the star. A film about Oscar Wilde. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. The Happy Prince, starring Rupert Everett, opens today in theaters. And when we come back from a break, it's Weekend Passport, when global citizen Nari Safavi shows you how to get out of town and enjoy an international weekend without buying a plane ticket. I'm Steve Bynum, and you're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in for Jerome McDonald. And it's time for Weekend Passport when we show you how to get around the world without buying a plane ticket. And here to tell us how we can have an international good time in Chicago this weekend is our friend Nari Safavi. Hi, Nari. Good day, Steve. It's great to be here again. Good to have you as always. And so, Nari, we're going to bypass the usual weekend mentions. I just did a funny dare, and you'll know why in a minute. Okay. And give you the opportunity to introduce a very special guest. Yes, we're going to Egypt for our segment today. And Bassem Youssef, who is by training a, cardi- a cardiothoracic surgeon, but is also a comic and used to have a daily news show very similar to John Stewart's uh, daily show here in Cairo, in Egypt, and making fun of the powerful and the news that was going on that day. Some people call him the Egyptian John Stewart. I actually call John Stewart the American uh, Bassem Youssef. But uh, we're going to play a little segment of Bassem doing a fusion show, a, a web series that he did for fusion. So I am a Muslim Egyptian, and um, I want to play down my Arabness. Uh, Do I pass for a white person? Uh, in terms of... Uh, Can I pass for an Italian? Yeah, why not? Okay. I bet you half the people you meet already think you're Italian. No, so, no, no. no. But, I mean, that's a way you could go if you wanted to. Oh, Madonna. Oh. Yeah? Oh. Okay, I'll work on the Italian. In the meantime, I wanted to see what's working for other Arabs who have been here for a bit. So what should we do to change our image in the American media? Um, get more assimilated. How did you get assimilated? Did you get an operation, got taller, got like your... No, is that keratin? What no, no, I, yeah, there's a lot of keratin in my hair. But yes. I just I just think the first generation has a hard time assimilating. The Italians had a hard time back in the 1910, 1915. They had a hard time. The Germans, too. And it's the second or third generation that assimilates better. Wait for two or three generations? And nobody got time for that. Sonari, it's a great pleasure to have our special guest with us. Take it away. Yeah, uh, I have to say, Dr. Youssef, if I'm a proper Middle Eastern gentleman, but we're going to try to be casual here and I'll call him Bassem. Bassem, welcome to Worldviews Weekend Passport. 
Thank you so much. And you can call me Dr. Bassam. It's fine. <laughs> Dr. Bassam. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's those Middle Eastern decorums and everything. It's yeah. just hard to shake them off, you know. It's this Dr. Yusuf. <laughs> Anyways, Bassam is fine. Yeah, well, yes. glad to have you here. And, uh, you know, very impressed with your line of work. And it's a privilege for us to be able to have a conversation here. I'm glad that you will be here in Chicago at the College of DuPage. I'm very excited to bring that show to Chicago. Well, Basim, tell us a little bit about transitions, the challenges of making the transitions and coming to America. You're a person who has had many different fields, many different uh, track records of work, different identities as you are dealing with assimilations issues. Tell us a little bit about the challenges that you're facing. Well, coming here to the United States was not much of a culture shock that a lot of people would imagine. I mean, I kind of like blended in and maybe because I'm lucky, I, I kind of like... Uh, settled in Los Angeles, California, where it's very difficult not to blend in. It is more of a challenge of coming on a much older age, being a much more established person in your country and starting all over again. That's the bigger challenge for me, Uh, especially that I was established in the media scene in Egypt. And now I have to come here and start all over again. And I have to communicate through the entertainment scene using a different language, that language that's not mine, a second language. And I have to appeal to an audience that is not used to me. So basically, my challenge is more uh, professional than anything else. Other than that, assimilation-wise, there was no problem. However, I can see the dangers of assimilation of other people that might actually have a harder time, uh, especially with the change that we see in the political scene here. But uh, so far, my challenge has been professional more than anything else. Yeah. Are you still doing surgery too? No, I have <laughs> stopped doing surgery. Stop doing because that. that uh, yeah, because that will be a, even an added challenge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what do you think about the comedy scene now here, trying to be a Muslim and an Arab American and and in the comedy world? I'm sure it's all rife with potential for making humor. Tell us about your creative process. Well, in Egypt, I mean, I was not trained to be a comedian. I was trained as a heart surgeon, but I was inspired by how people stood against an oppressive regime and how the regime responded with lies and conspiracy theories. And because I was very inspired all my life with the works of John Stewart, I wanted to bring that to light. I want to show people how uh, lies and conspiracy theories can actually be very harmful and how humor could be a great antidote to dismantle this. So I started to do that in my YouTube videos, and I really didn't think too much about it because I was basically on my way out of the country because I was accepted to work in America in a fellowship, in a heart surgery pediatric uh, uh, fellowship. And uh, the videos exploded, and suddenly I was offered to have my own show in, in, in Egypt. And the creative process here basically was a little bit challenging because we didn't have any blueprints in Egypt about how to do a political satire show or how to do a live show. So we had to reverse engineer everything and we had to create it from scratch. And it was all of a trial and error. And I was an amateur uh, managing a bunch of amateurs doing the stuff that professionals would do. So I think we were very lucky that we had we managed to be successful given all of these circumstances. Yeah. And how long did the learning curve take? For all of that. Oh, no, the learning curve never stops. Never <laughs> stops, <learning> okay. <laughs> but, but, but we managed to actually, within one year, to be the biggest show in the history of the Middle East. Yeah, you so... You guys made a splash. Uh, and the thing is, I'm very proud, not because of... I mean, putting aside the 
speaking truth to power and stuff like that. I'm proud that like even after we left and even after the ceiling of freedom of expression has dropped so badly, but our show helped change the narrative and the shape of television forever. You can actually see a clear demarcation about how what television looks like before and after the show. Even now with shows, there's hardly any political satire show, but even general entertainment shows has actually changed, inspired by our experience, which I think I'm very proud of. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum with Nari Safavi and its Weekend Passport, where we show you how to have an international good time in Chicago without buying a plane ticket. And we have Basim Youssef with us, a comedian, producer, writer, broadcaster, podcaster. And he's going to be in the Chicago area at the College of DuPage tonight at 7.30 p.m. at the Belushi Performance Hall. Um, Ex-heart surgeon. And ex-heart surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> who doesn't practice anymore. Yeah. But I did. <laughs> I can still open you up if I want to. Well, how good were you when you were practicing? <laughs> oh, baby, I could change a valve with like... Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> could give you a valve job like that. <laughs> I can give you a valve job Valve like job that. like an Egyptian. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, but you spoke about that transitional period during a lot of the unrest in Egypt and... As you know, there's a a long historical tradition of comedians and satirists taking on the powerful, even speaking in the faces of kings and and queens. And so tell us about that time and um, how did this all come about? And tell us a little bit about, you know, what led you to leave? Well, well, the thing is, like, I did the show as, like, YouTube. That was, like, practically out of a vacant room in my house. But the thing is, when the videos exploded and we had, like, millions of views, every single TV network wanted to have me on board. So that was something also unusual because there was no, at that time, conversion from YouTube to television never happened. And this is it. I mean, as I said, it was something that is uh, an interesting experience because we never did it before and we didn't know what we were doing. As far as the uh, tradition, Egypt has a very, very strong and, and ancient tradition of comedy. But in the last 60 or 70 years, especially under military dictatorship, most of the comedy was mostly social satire and social comedy. And people were not allowed to exceed a certain threshold. In their comedy. And I think this is why people found it uh, extremely uh, unique and different. So, Basim, give me an example, um, one of the jokes that got you in trouble. I can give you a narrative. So, for example, under the Islamists, we dared to cross the line and make fun of the religious figures who were basically brainwashing the people through religion. And then when the military came, we dared to challenge the narrative of the military and show their lies because the military is used to propagate fake achievements and we call them out. So it's not like about the joke. We never thought it about like joke-wise. We sure. thought about it as message. What is our message? Yeah, social and our commentary. message was, was always challenging the, the authority, no matter how strong the authority is. And when you talk about religion and military, these are the, the most too powerful authorities you can ever have. One of them has the power of the gun and one of them has the power of God. And in a conservative society like ours, that is something that was unheard of. And people would be offended because they would consider that religious man with a beard as a symbol of religion or that guy with a beret a symbol of national security. And it was challenging, but we always managed to make a distinction that we're not making fun of religion and we're not making fun of the troops. We're making fun of the abuse of power. 
So it's ironic that you mention that because ridiculing religion or religious figures or the military in the United States can be taboo as well. Can you uh, talk a little bit about uh, those yeah, comparisons? Of, of, of course. This is a tool that is used by all authoritarian minds in the authoritarian regimes. For example, in the United States, when people take a knee, they are clearly objecting the treatment of, of a certain minority of black people. But then it will always be twisted. It's like, oh, you're disrespecting the flag, you're disrespecting the country, you're disrespecting the truce. This is the same way that like when I would talk about the lies that are used by religious people, it's like, oh, you're disrespecting religion, you're disrespecting Islam, which is not true. So it's always about like how the other side will always twist this into a way to alienate people against you. And you need to be strong and to be clear and you say, like, I'm calling your bluff and you're not going to use this against me because I am clear of what I'm doing. And they, they always want to put you in a defensive position. And this is what happens because suddenly it's the people who are using their First Amendment right, which is kneeling to object for something, now have to defend themselves. They're wasting a lot of energy trying to prove that they are not disrespecting the flag. So this is the way that they divert the conversation. Okay, Basim, uh, what can the audience expect tonight at the College of the Page? People coming to the show will see mm -hmm. a personal journey, a okay. personal journey, a storytelling of what I had to go through in Egypt and what I'm going through in America because I'm using humor. And what are the challenges that I face there and what are the challenges that I'm facing here? And it's going to be a heartfelt, a joyous, funny Amazing, incredible, something that you have never be seen before. So as you can see, as I'm using the American techniques of self-promoting myself. <laughs> and I hope that people will come, buy the tickets, and have a wonderful time. Well, anyways, thank you. I uh, look forward to the show. And, uh, you know, I hope I'll see you over there uh, later on tonight. And uh, thank you for uh, being on Worldview with us. Thank you so much. Monday on Worldview, Jerome McDonald is back. And he'll have a chat with journalist Daniel Alarcon to discuss his new article in Wired magazine that reads more like a mystery than a report as it weaves the story on why Puerto Rico has spent the last year with little to no electricity. So stay tuned for that as we continue our Puerto Reconstruction series Monday on Worldview. Worldview is produced by myself, Steve Bynum, Julian Haidai, and Galilee Abdullah. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Steve Bynum, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.